a clearly having a business plan, and it doesn't have to be 27 pages long, but knowing where you're going to start and some goals or metrics that you are going to hit, even things like what you're going to pay yourself and try to predict the next 12 months and check some of those things off as you go. And if you miss step three, right, if you're missing a, a third goal, make sure that it's not part of that critical foundation that will actually prevent you or, or set you up for failure in the near future. So really laying out your plan. And I'll ask people all the time, do you have a business plan? And they'll say, no, you know, it's too cumbersome. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Like, tell me where you're starting. What are you paying yourself? Uh, what, what's, What's success for you? Is it revenue? Is it profit? But what's that number? And then how, how are you getting there? What are the goals that we're going to hit? So keeping it simple and then trying to stay focused and staying on that track so you don't get super distracted, head the wrong direction. Hey, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Allison Holshoff. And uh, Allison uh, grew up in a small town in South Dakota. And when you say small, I think it was like population 200, which beats a town or small town that I grew up in, uh, went to college on a scholarship. And in her words, she was an average C student, uh, but got scholarship to, uh, for community service. Um, originally wanted to go into teaching, so started undergraduate as teaching, um, but then as uh, get, got farther into it and went to or was looking to go to grad school, decided she wanted to shift from teaching to behavior analysis. So she had a, I think a teacher, a mentor that went to and uh, talked about it and got into behavior analysis, graduated uh, in the field and started an in-home model. I think started it out as for free um, and then got told that she shouldn't do it for free. So decided to adjust that or shift that a bit and uh, started offering it um, or as, uh, as a model for to make money or as a business. Um, in the early days, it was difficult to figure out how to do payroll and navigate all the business things. And then had, I think, one of her parent or the parents of one of her clients helped her to kind of figure that out, get going, started a clinic in her house, decided that uh, she wasn't zoned for that and better have an attorney help her out. And then uh, shifted that to a or a legal a legal model. And then uh, it's been doing that for about 12 years, sold off the business, and now is in the business of helping other businesses to set up to be successful. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Allison. Thank you. That was quite a mouthful there. So you got <laughs> it out well. I did my best. So with that, um, you know, I took a much longer journey and condensed it into 30 seconds or however long it was. Um, but why don't you take us a bit uh, back in time a bit to growing up in a small town, going to college and uh, how your journey got started there? Yeah. So I grew up in a small reservation town in South Dakota. Um, and really, there wasn't a lot of big thriving businesses in the community I grew up in. There was a lot of small businesses, small town businesses, and they all did really well. And I think from a very early age, I knew I wanted to be in business of some sort or teaching or helping. And if I could merge the two worlds together, it would be perfect. Um, really, I, I there wasn't uh, an opportunity until I got into high school. I took a, an entrepreneur class and I remember being in it at that time and thinking, 
I really liked this. Like I liked putting a business plan together. I liked having that vision and thinking about how all the pieces would work together, but didn't really know how as an actual adult, I would actually make that happen or what business I would be in. But I definitely knew that was the journey I wanted to take. Mm. So now, so with that kind of, that's the journey you want to take with that in mind, you go off to school, start out going into teaching and how did things, how did things kind of evolve from there? Yeah. So I got into special ed teaching in my undergrad and I had two families that I was working for that had flown in a uh, behavior analysis uh, or an analyst from California. And I was exposed to this new model of therapy called ABA. And what I loved about it is it was highly effective. It was data driven and it was really exciting. And I was working in people's homes and then working with their newly diagnosed child with autism. So the business didn't really make sense to me, but the passion, the, the strategy, I loved that. Um, but you made like $10 an hour doing it. Um, and I actually didn't even know there was a business model that could go along with it. So I thought the closest thing next to that would be being a teacher. And so that's the path I had headed down. Um, and really in our state, there wasn't any insurance mandates. There wasn't any insurance funding for this. And so you're either doing it for 10 bucks an hour or you were doing it for free or you were a teacher. Like that was the really only way that I could see in our state getting into that. Hmm. So now you so say you decide, okay, I'm going to get into being a teacher. That's the, the best, or best path forward. And then I think it, and you'll have to correct me wrong, you got either to the end of undergraduate or, or shortly there and decided you didn't want to be a teacher. That wasn't the exact path you wanted to go into. And so got into behavior, behavioral analysis. Is that right? Yeah. So I finished up my undergrad and then very quickly went right on into grad school. Like I graduated on a Saturday and Monday I started grad school and I knew at that moment, I really wanted to stay in the world of working with kids with autism. I didn't really care how I was going to do it, but I, I knew that's my path. Um, and so my first year of grad school, I finished grad school in 18 months, but I taught high school and I was a lousy high school teacher. Like I didn't like the paperwork. I didn't love, um, the public school system in the sense of like, I had always sat on the other side of teaching where I, or as a professional, I had been working with families to really advocate for high intensity, high level services for their kids. And I felt like as a public educator, I just, I was having to do what was kind of the standard model. And so my my feelings for it just weren't the same. I was like, but these kids can get so much more. And, and so it was very driven by this passion. And so at the time, um, I was going to grad school on a stipend of $750 a month. And I always tell people, I was in grad school, I was making $750 a month to be a teacher, living in a tiny little bedroom, one bedroom apartment with this old, like 20 year old cat that I had adapted or adopted that needed shots that probably cost more than I even made. It was ridiculous. And so I was like, I need a part-time job. And so I went back to ABA, which is behavior analyst work. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to find families who need that service. So to supplement my teaching in the evenings, I was providing in-home ABA service for families who had, you know, newly diagnosed kids with autism. They already had some sort of program, but you know, I was I was skilled enough in the clinic clinical part of it that I could just go in and do it. But again, I was literally going to work for like anywhere between 10 and $12 an hour um, just to supplement. I always told people just to supplement my cat's livelihood. Like I just had to keep that cat alive, um, finished up grad school and went to the state of South Dakota and knew that I just, I was not cut out to be a teacher. 
um, I interviewed for like three jobs, got a couple great offers and just was like, I'm a lousy teacher. So I went to the state of South Dakota, um, had a program and they were really just expanding into the world of autism. And I was like, I don't care. I'll do anything, but I love early intervention. I want to help spread the word. And they were like, we just wrote a grant. We're going to hire you on. And so I remember taking that job and I was so excited. I, I made like 34,000 a year, just finished up my master's, had my first retirement fund. And I grew up in a literally a, a three bedroom trailer house that you could have attached to something and moved away um, in a really small town. So my dad didn't have a retirement. Um, so I was feeling like I was doing pretty good with this state job, uh, had health insurance, uh, so at that point I was like, this totally makes sense. And that's the trajectory I took that really got me into that world of know knowing what, what services needed to be provided in our state. And then took me to the next journey, which was opening my own business. Hmm. So now, so, so you get into, and you say, okay, undergraduate didn't quite have things figured out, get to graduate school, say, okay, this is a path I want to take. You come out, you say, okay, there's some grants or some things that I can do. Got to keep the cat alive. And you come out and you, you know, you get that first job and, you know, was it kind of, as opposed to teaching, was it everything you wanted? Was it what you wanted to do or kind of how did that lead you down the path of starting your own business out of your house and maybe not doing it, you know, legally initially, or at least not zoned for it or correctly, but how did you kind of make that transition? Well, there's two parts. One, I, I attribute some of my success to just being not smart enough to know the risk. Um, so no, it wasn't all I had dreamed of. So the state job came with lots of paperwork and lots of red tape and lots of requirements. Uh, and what I was very aware of within that first year is I am not a good employee. Um, I just am not. Like I wanted to move fast and I wanted to make things happen. I wanted to serve our clients. Um, but I didn't really love all the rules that came with being a state employee. And it was the silly things that I didn't like. Uh, I hate to admit this out loud, but it was things like having to follow a certain protocol to check out a car or save my receipts, which by the way, I do a much better job now that I own my own company. Um, but it just felt like I was coming in and punching a clock. So I loved autism. I loved the work that we were doing, but I only loved it about 25% of the time. Cause the other part of the time, I felt like I was meeting these um, kind of meaningless red tape rules that just didn't make sense to what I had gotten into the field to do. So I met a family and what was happening is we had, we had created this amazing clinic to diagnose these kids. And then we would send them out and we'd say, I'll see you in three to six months, which meant I was going to hand you a pamphlet. You were newly diagnosed, dealing with your child, had no idea what the next step was in life. And I was handing you a brochure and saying, see you in six months. Well, I had grown up in a space where watching these families fight and bring services to their children. So I knew how desperate these families were and how bad they needed help. And, and so I just felt, I met this little boy and mom and dad were so amazing. Um, and they were so passionate. They were like, we're not selling our house. We're not moving across state lines to get services. We, we want them here. Um, and I thought to myself like, wow, like they're right. He's two. And I knew if we got in there and did services right away, we could make a major life impact for this kiddo. And so I was like, well, let me help you for free. I'll bring in some OT and PT students. You can just pay them privately. I can help manage your program or at least get it set up for you. Um, and so it's still at that point, not thinking about this being a business. I just wanted to help them get access to care. And so we did it. It went 
you know, the family was amazing. And it was funny because I, I always believed that dad already knew it was going to be a business, whether, whether we knew we would end up doing this journey, you know, along the same path together or not, but he knew that there was something there. And so we established a team and the, and the child immediately started to see results with therapy. And they were on a nine month wait list to get a clinician to come in from Minnesota to take over. And so I'd only been with them a couple of weeks and, and my director said, Hey, you can't go into somebody's home and just do this for free for fun. And I was like, well, if I don't serve him, then nobody's going to get services and he'll just wait. And that's nine months where the gap will continue to widen. And she was like, yeah, well, get your priorities straight. And I remember walking out of her office and being like, get my priorities straight. I grew up poor. So I was like, can't really get much worse than this. Right. <laughs> so I had $500 in my checking account and went home wrote my resignation letter, um, called my director on a Sunday and she came over after church. And I said, I think I want to quit my job and start an ABA business. And she said, lots of people have thought that and lots of people have failed. So there is nobody in our state doing this, but if anybody's going to do it well, you'll do it. And so I was like, well, that's somewhat reassuring. <laughs> that's kind uh, of encouraging. Kind of, and kind of scary. Cause she's like, oh yeah, I knew lots of people who've tried that. Everybody's failed. I'm like, okay. Um, but I didn't really have a choice, right? I mean, we lived in a tiny house. Uh, my husband had just taken a job as a fireman. As a matter of fact, he just quit his job and was waiting to be hired as a fireman. We had a baby. Uh, and so I remember telling my husband, Hey, I'm going to quit my job. The only stable source of income that we have, uh, that pays our mortgage. And I'm going to start a business that I know nothing about. Uh, and he was like, okay, well, we're, we're one flat tire away from not being able to get to work. So, uh, wasn't highly encouraging, but he was just like, I mean, I guess if you're not happy, you know, do you. And I was like, okay. And so that was the next step. So now you, you make that next step and you actually go out and you start to try and, you know, where others have failed, do it differently, do it better, do it, you know, to where it's a, a successful or sustainable <laughs> business. Now, did it, did it go great and you proved them all wrong and it was a <laughs> business and made lots of money and it was, you could fix that flat tire if it came along or was it bumpy or kind of, how did it go for you? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 12 years later, it was beautiful. Uh, the first 12 years looked a little different. Um, no, there, I mean, there were times that I was, I, I'll, I'll tell you my first big hire I brought in somebody um, out of state, had hired them, and I was maybe only in business eight, nine months at the time, and she wanted an incredible big pay raise, and if I couldn't afford to give her a pay raise, she wanted half of my company, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't give her what she wants, she's going to walk, and my company will fail. It will fall apart completely, and so I actually went back to John, the gentleman who helped me really know that there was a vision there to create the company. I was sitting in his basement and I was crying and I said, I feel held hostage and I am terrified to do this on my own. She was a little bit of my safety net because she had worked in a large successful clinic. And so I, I was like, I just am terrified. And so at that moment, he said, listen, if you ever feel like an employee has backed you into a corner, you know that it is time to cut ties. And I was like, well, what if I fail? And he was like, well, what if you don't? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was the hardest, I always joke and say, I don't like firing people, but that was the worst fire I have ever done in, in my two decades of being a business owner. Um, because I felt like her and I had started to build something together. Um, and it felt like we were breaking up. And so that was really tricky. I think 
learning how to navigate staff not being your friends and being your employees, because I wasn't very old, right? I was 26 when I started on this journey. A lot of my staff were within five years um, of the same age as I was, some were older. I think learning how to navigate, how to be a really good leader and, and what you do and don't share with your employees was a huge learning curve for me. I'm thankful I built a really great team in the end, but I made a lot of mistakes those first five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, a third area where I struggled is I had a lot of issue with knowing who was qualified to be on my team and who was related to me. Um, no kidding. Like I was hiring my next door neighbor, my, hired my nanny to do my billing. I hired my cousin. Uh, so if I trusted you and I thought you would show up, I would then you were appropriate for the job. And it took me a lot of years to realize that just because I enjoyed your company didn't mean you were the right fit for my business. No, so, I, I think that, you know, that's a, a thing that I think comes along with a lot of, or a lot of people that, oh, if, you know, everybody will do a good job and everybody will just show up and they'll work hard and they'll be competent. And sometimes it's true. And a lot of times you get to learn the hard way that different employees are, are not all employees are the same and not all have the skill sets and the work ethic and everything else. And so I think that's definitely one that people hit on. So now as you're doing it, just to fast forward a little bit on your journey, but you've, so you've done that first five years hard doing a business is always hard so I don't know that it ever just is like oh this is easy no worries and it's I I never worry about payroll I never worry about the next client but but I think it does get to different levels of hey survival mode versus hey we're actually making some money versus we're growing the business versus we've reached a bit of more of a steady state but as you're doing that you know so you take that first five years when you got towards the end, you know, and you're looking at your business has been around for 12, 13 years, what made you decide to take that and, and or sell it off or go in a different direction? So by the 12th year, things were going really well. It really was running pretty smoothly. The issues we had were much bigger though, right? I had hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had millions of dollars in payroll by that time. I was paying, you know, 80 people's mortgages, not just mine. And so there was a lot of weight that came with that, I think, and stress. I also, we, we were starting to expand. We had expanded into four new states. Um, and there was a lot of the unforeseen in the healthcare industry. And so I have always done really well by finding people that I could learn from. And I, I had really kind of maxed out my capacity of learning within my own network. <laughs> and the market, the, the market to sell an ABA company was insane. People were paying crazy multiples on EBITDA. Um, and so there was a little bit of taking advantage of that. Hmm. And at that point, I think I had my fifth kid and we were getting ready to adopt our sixth baby. Um, and I thought in my mind, it might be time to slow down. Um, cause I was like, man, six kids, I feel like I should stay home. And, uh, I really was seeking a partnership. I wanted somebody to work alongside of me and I just wasn't sure how else to get it if I didn't sell. So when I was looking at acquisition opportunities, I, I looked for somebody who was going to come in and then allow me to continue to grow my role. The other part of it is, I was kind of bored, right? Like I could open up a clinic and grow and we'd have, you know, decent profitability, but I wasn't like waking up energized to go to work anymore. Um, I felt like the excitement had kind of died and it became work and I hadn't experienced that. Uh, so I think at that point, the, the, the reason to sell was it was a huge financial upside. 
And the people who were looking to acquire me were really smart. I mean, there was 26 different um, investment type of opportunities. And man, I, I was excited every time I talked to any of them about growth and opportunity and new markets and um, mergers and acquisitions, things that I didn't get to have conversation with any of my employees. And so I realized very quickly, I was like, oh, this excites me. Um, it was challenging. I felt like I had, I, I had to work hard to understand it better. So it, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. So now, and so you, you said, okay, timing's right. Money's right. You know, while I could keep doing this, the excitement level probably is waning a bit and it's just becoming a bit more of a, a day-to-day churn. So you do that and you sell off the business. Now, how did you figure out what you're going to do next or what you want to do now? Stay at home, do the, or be the, be mom, take it some time off, go to the next business or kind of, how did you decide here's the, the next or next step I'm going to take? So during my acquisition phase, I, I had a, bro- a broker ran process. I had a few months where I, I actually stepped back from the company and just focused on selling it, which means I was home a lot. And I love my husband and my children. However, I was like this, it's not for me. I wasn't happy. I wasn't excited. Um, I mean, I enjoyed them, but I just was like, okay, well, this is real work. So I said to my husband, there's no way I'm retiring. I'm not seeing, I like, if I want to, it was funny, the processes we went through were like, okay, maybe we should open a horse business. Maybe we should open a gym. Maybe we should open a, I mean, like pick a business. We were going to open it and operate it because I was like, I can't sit still. Um, when I chose to sell, I sold to a company that allowed me to come on and do mergers and acquisitions for them. So then I was going out and evaluating companies. And, and so at that point I was like, I'm going to just find somebody who wants to buy me and employ me. I'm going to try being an employee again. Uh, that was a terrible idea. I made it about 18 months and I was like, I'm, I liked being able to make the, make the decisions and move quickly. And so I made it 18 months and I went to them and said, I'm a terrible employee. Like I helped close seven acquisitions, but the only place I was happy is when I was actually making the decisions really. Um, And part of it was I had built a team and now all of a sudden I was by myself again, right? I was working with a very small team, but really my job was to go out, convince you to sell to me and then bring you in. And then I hijacked it to the next target. And I missed that connection. I missed helping people. But what I realized is there was a ton of businesses who needed just general business help. And so I was able to get out of my non-compete, um, not easily and not without great amounts of fear, right? Like I, I bet I sat for four months and, and tried to decide, is it right to stay and just wait this out till my non-compete's done? What if they're really upset with me and they lock me out of the market? I mean, I'm going to have to be running a hot dog stand. Um, and so I, I finally got up enough courage to ask them to let me out. They agreed with some negotiations, which cost me financially a pretty good chunk of money. Um, and then I decided to open a consulting firm that specifically focused on businesses that were in the healthcare space that wanted to do what I did. They wanted to start from the very beginning. They wanted to grow and scale, or they wanted to sell. I lived through all three of those phases. So I thought, well, this this is actually something I know pretty well. And I'd made a, I could have probably wrote two books on the mistakes I made. Um, So that is how I started this company. And I I think it doesn't matter how successful you were your first go around your second business will still have growing pains. (laughs) Um, There's still fear, right? There's 
even today we're going to be in November will be our second year in business. Um, but it's not like it came without some of those original growing pains that I had the first go around. Mm. No, and I think that, you know, that's, it's always, there's a lot of tumult that usually, or a lot of times, you know, starting your own business, whether it's you're leaving another job, it's should it, is the timing right? You know, to your point, if you have a non-compete, it can even more complicate it. What is that next business going to be? Is it going to be successful as the first business I did? And I think there's always that uh, level of uncertainty that you're just having to deal with and, and work your way through it and uh, find what fits best for you. And it sounds like that was a, a fun journey for you. So well, that kind of brings us up into uh, where you're at today and always a, a fun time to transition to the two questions I always hit at the end of the, each podcast. So if we will uh, go ahead and jump to those now. So having just gone through all of your journey, kind of brought us up to where you're at today, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? What'd you learn from it? Um, I would think my worst business decision I ever made was outsourcing all of my financial controls. So like my bookkeeping, um, my taxes and all of that and not understanding or knowing it well. And so that actually lived with me through two phases, my first business. And I even started out my second business, even though I knew it was a bad idea, I was letting somebody else manage my QuickBooks, manage my bookkeeping. And I was just taking the reports in. And I remembered, it was funny. I remembered wanting to pull some information and thinking, I know better. Like this was a huge mistake my first go around. And I, I did it when I started this, what am I thinking? Um, and so bringing that in-house and really knowing and understanding your financial information. And I think, and not, not that you have two biggest business mistakes, but I think the other one would be over leveraging myself for growth. And I, I did that in my first business where I was constantly working towards that next clinic and, and over leveraging and causing undue stress. So it's one of the things I've carried with into my second business where I remind myself and my clients all the time, how much, how much is it really worth to over leverage yourself, right? If you're feeling unsafe and uncertain about making payroll, you know, having those growth and gains, you need to be very cautious because your, your mental well-being is worth something. So there is two of those big lessons for me. All right. No, and I like both of them. I like the first one here because I think that that is a lot of times one mistake that uh, small business owners often make is with finances. It's not that they don't want to make money and they don't want to understand profitability, but most business owners I talk with, they, unless you're a finance person, love the numbers and love the gym, that's not why you get into business. It's not to sit down and look at, you know, monthly expenses and run payroll and profit and loss statements and do taxes. And it's like, those are all the things that you kind of like, well, if I have to do it, I will because it's part of the business, but it's not the fun thing. And yet a lot of times when you turn the control and the, and the reins over to someone else, it distances you and you don't know exactly what's going on. And it can sometimes be a hindrance because expenses are too high or, you know, things aren't being managed as well. And it's because you don't know the information, you don't know your data. So I think it's one of those where you have to find that right balance as to how you can be involved with the finances, be understand your business, and yet not be spending your, on the, your time on all the things that you dislike. So I think that that's definitely a good lesson to learn from. Second question I always ask is, talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? I would say clearly having a business plan, and it doesn't have to be 27 pages long, but knowing where you're going to start and some goals or metrics that you are going to hit, even things like what you're going to pay yourself and try to predict the next 12 months and check some of those things off as you go. 
And if you miss step three, right, if you're missing a, a third goal, make sure that it's not part of that critical foundation that will actually prevent you or, or set you up for failure in the near future. So really laying out your plan. And I'll ask people all the time, do you have a business plan? And they'll say, no, you know, it's too cumbersome. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Like, tell me where you're starting. What are you paying yourself? Uh, what, what's, what's success for you? Is it revenue? Is it profit? But what's that number? And then how, how are you getting there? What are the goals that we're going to hit? So keeping it simple and then trying to stay focused and staying on that track so you don't get super distracted and head the wrong direction. No, and I think that that's good. Now, the caveat I always give, and I, I think that's a great piece of advice, is that I think where sometimes people get frustrated is that they have their business plan and they're saying, okay, now things change. And I, don't, I would say almost every startup and small business I know, you end up pivoting, you end up adjusting and the where you're at in 10 years is probably not where you end, where you put in your business plan. And so you have to, on the one hand, I think you have to have that plan. You have to have that strategy and how you're going to attack it and convince yourself this is a worthwhile business and what are your, what are the weight steps you're going to get there and what are your goals? I think you're absolutely necessary. And you know, on the same thing, you have to stand back and say, now with that in mind, if the plan doesn't work, go accordingly. I have to have enough flexibility to adjust it so that I can still accomplish what I need to critically without maybe going the exact path that I had originally laid out. So I think that that's a, a great takeaway for people as you're, as you're trying to plan for your business and get things up and going and be successful. I like that you said, you know, the business plan with 10 years. I, I don't think I've thought 10 years ahead of me once yet. I, I live in about 12 month increments and then I'm like, okay, now what's next? So no, I definitely agree. And I think that having those managed, well, you can have stretch goals or things that, hey, here's the general direction we want to hit into the future. But I think you also need to say plans are ones where I, it's hard enough time to know what I'm going to be doing next year, let alone in five years, let alone in 10 years. So I'm making it a reasonable scope that you can actually implement on it and then have that flexibility that if something else or is better or comes along or forces you to, to pivot, they're also willing to, to do that as well. So I think that's a great, great piece of advice. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Yep. If you go to oboke60.com, you can jump right on my calendar. Now we check out our website, which is www.obokeconsulting.com. And either one of those will get you directions right to me. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, connect up and find out more. So well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Feel free to just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. Also, as a listener, make sure to, to click like, subscribe, and share so that both you and everybody else can continue to get all these awesome episodes. And last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, reach out to us at Miller IP Law. Just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Well, thank you again, Allison, for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks so much. Have a good one.